0: We are in a moment of tremendous promise, but also a tremendous reaction on the right and the far right with white supremacy and rising authoritarianism and those who want permanent minority rule, which is directly counter uh, to this idea of a multiracial democracy.
1: Hello, this is The Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Kyle Strickland, who is Deputy Director of Race and Democracy at the Roosevelt Institute where he leads research focused on policy and political movement building on race, the economy, and democracy. He manages the Think Tank's Race Landscape Project, exploring the ideas driving today's racial justice movement. In addition, he's a legal analyst at the Kirwan Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity. So we had a good talk about his career, including the politics he had to navigate as student body president at Harvard Law School, and why he'd like the US Senate to dispense with the filibuster. You should listen. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Kyle Strickland of the Roosevelt Institute. Launching a campaign? Change Digital launches campaign websites in as little as 72 hours using our templates built with your goals in mind. Choose your template, submit website content, and we'll take care of the rest. You'll also get social and email templates that are easy to use and match your website's look and feel. For less than $1,800, launch your campaign with a professional digital presence starting on day one. Visit changedigital.us to learn more and get started. Kyle, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography?
0: My name is Kyle Strickland. I'm the Deputy Director of Race and Democracy at the Roosevelt Institute. My background from Columbus, Ohio, trained as an attorney, and just grateful uh, to be here today. Yeah, so looking forward to it.
1: Well, that's a quick biography, and I think there's a lot beneath the surface there. Where did you grow up? What kind of family?
0: Yeah, so I grew up in Columbus, Ohio, um, actually a suburb of, of Columbus in Worthington. Is interesting because growing up in Columbus and in, in that suburb, not a lot of folks that look like me. Uh, as as a Black American in Columbus, Ohio, um, the suburb I grew up in, uh, predominantly white suburb, and as a result of that, I never really felt like I I could fit in, and I didn't necessarily know why uh, that was. I knew obviously, you know, my background and others not looking like me was one thing, uh, but also my parents got divorced at a pretty young age. So when I was six years old, my parents got divorced. And so I was around a lot of my classmates that seemed to have uh, their families together. And so for me, it was always seemed that something was off, something was different. It wasn't until later I realized how common a divorce was. And so it wasn't all that surprising. But in that context and in that community, it was always something that I noticed. But Nonetheless, uh, my mom primarily raised my brother and I, who's about five years older than me, and we had a great childhood. And I still have a great relationship with my father, and so was able to maintain that relationship even as my parents were divorced. But kind of growing up, had, had the opportunity to go to some great schools, and it was because my parents invested in me. I didn't realize the amount of struggle that they had to to make us through these schools, but it was an opportunity that laid the groundwork to kind of where I am today.
1: You went to the Ohio State University?
0: Yes, went to Ohio State University, yep, the Ohio State.
1: I, <laughs> yes, and was that a good experience?
0: Yeah, it was an incredible experience, but it was also an enlightening experience in terms of how much your zip code shapes so much of your life outcomes. Um, In the sense that, you know, when I was in high school, you know, I was a decent student, got A's and B's, did okay in in school. Um, But actually, initially, when I applied for Ohio State, because I'd always wanted to go to Ohio State, it was in the backyard of of Columbus, Ohio, wanted to go there. But I actually initially got rejected. It was one of my school counselors who called me down into the office, my high school counselor who said, you know, I think they're making a mistake and uh, I think you should write a letter. And explain why you should be able to go to a place like Ohio State and the type of impact you'll be able to make. And I said, okay, sure. Not sure what difference that's gonna make. So I write this letter. I say, you know, I wanna be able to go to Ohio State, not just uh, help in my own success, but also to help others and, and to make an impact in the community. And I think a place like Ohio State will give me that opportunity. A couple of weeks later, get a letter in the mail saying that. Uh, I was accepted to Ohio State. And it, and it opened so many doors that I didn't even realize was possible. But it also made me understand how important w- it was that I had a counselor who was able to invest in me and see potential in me that I didn't even see myself. I really had a chip on my shoulder at that point. I really had to make sure I had to prove that I belonged there. And ultimately, uh, it opened all, all sorts of doors at Ohio State. But I loved and enjoyed my experience there. Um, And it was something that I I realized that you had some kids who lived five minutes from campus on the near east side or the south side of Columbus who would never step foot on Ohio State's campus because of all sorts of disparities and what it means to be living in a particular zip code. But because I happen to live on the northwest side of the city, I had opportunities that others didn't have. And so that opened my eyes in ways that I didn't know before when I was just in high school.
1: To what degree was it integrated truly at that university? What I've seen in lots of places that are diverse, that people sort of behave in some aspects of their life fairly tribally, what did you see on campus? Yeah.
0: So it, it wasn't very integrated. I mean, in my, in my perspective as going from a predominantly white Suburbs, and predominantly white school system in Worthington, Ohio, the suburb of Columbus. It seemed incredibly diverse in comparison to that, relative to that. But relative to its actual size of the university, even though you had greater numbers and in, in population of uh, diverse populations, it wasn't very diverse as an institution. Um, and on top of that, the diversity that it had, it was you know somewhat integrated and. You have people of different backgrounds inter- interacting with one another at a, a place that's that big, but still largely you would see the divide between whether it's the kind of the Black cultural center or whether it's the sorority and fraternity life, Greek life, the differences there that you would see. And then, of course, residentially, just within Ohio State being placed on in the, the middle of Columbus, Ohio, seeing the clear divide on the east and west sides of the city of where predominantly white population lives on the west side of Columbus, Ohio, predominantly black population lives on the east side of Columbus. And so somewhat integrated, but you you could see the divide pretty clearly even at Ohio State.
1: How far back to the roots of your sort of political nature go? Do they go back to the family? Do they go to college?
0: They mostly started formulating a little bit in in high school, um, you know, Growing up in Ohio uh, at, the, at the time when Ohio used to be a, a swing state, and you know I would hope and say that it still is today, maybe, but it has certainly trended far away from that. It meant that every presidential election year there would be the presidential candidates in Ohio. And it always had an interest in that and interest in politics, and especially when uh, President Barack Obama came to the scene and that was something where, I was particularly inspired by the opportunity of the first black president to be elected and had the opportunity to go to a couple of rallies in Columbus and really sparked my interest there. The politics for me, I was always kind of aware of it, especially within my background as one of the few black families in in my school system. My parents identified as Democrats, but they didn't really talk too much politics to, to me. But I remember in elementary school, when the Bush v. Gore presidential election was happening, they had this elementary school stu- students do a simulated election, and we all had to, you know, you know, say who we would be voting for in that particular election. And I remember the vote, and it was me and like two other students out of a class of thirty who voted for Gore, and everybody else voted for Bush. So that's when I started to see that there was some divides here and I didn't really quite make all those connections until my high school years. And then of course at Ohio state.
1: Yeah. I had the opposite because I lived in Boulder, Colorado. So well, there you go. there'd be like one person. Well, I'm a lot older. So one person for Nixon and everyone else for McGovern or something.
0: Yep. Back yep. Then, so, yep. Different experience, different vibe here in Ohio. Yep.
1: Definitely. I, I noticed you did some field work, uh, Political field work while you're in college. How w- would you learn from that?
0: Yeah, so that was to me that that was an incredible opportunity to really take all of these different things that I was starting to learn, uh, both you know it, towards my end of my high school career into college career about place about poverty, about the economy and insecurity, and what it means to actually connect those issues to people's everyday lives beyond just an electoral campaign. And so a lot of the work that I did uh, at the time was was some grassroots work for, for the organization Save the Children at the time that were fighting child poverty. And I was connected through uh, a, a nonprofit organization that was doing some partnership work with them. And so I was on college campuses going door-to-door throughout Columbus, going... On the side of the street to basically ask for people to make donations to help fight child poverty. And it was an incredible experience because that was my first kind of foray into this nonprofit world, making those connections one person at a time, making a difference. Um, and it wasn't until later on when I made the realization and connection of, you know, while these donations are important, these investments are important, that alone is not going to address the dent of these systemic challenges and systemic problems. But it really did help me hone in on making an argument about why people should care about children that aren't even in their own backyards, but are are either all the way across the world and right here in the United States and why that matters. And so it made me realize the connections between poverty and also the type of future that we want to have in our society. And so I uh, love that experience doing that work. And then later on in college, I also did some more related to how do we help get people connected to jobs and opportunity and really getting a sense of union and labor organizing and why that was so critical to investing in the economy in our people. So it was a little bit of experience in college there. And of course, I got involved in college Democrats. And that's really where my, my politics took off.
1: I'm going to guess that you did very well in college or you wouldn't have ended up at Harvard Law School.
0: So yes, I did do very well. Thank you. And that happened though, because of that counselor. So I so I, I, you know, I think about my experience being able to go to a place like Harvard Law, it would not have happened had it not been for my, my counselor in high school who invested in me, because it wasn't until I went to college that I first ever got a 4.0 in any sort of uh, semester or quarter. And, and that was something because I realized, oh, I could actually do this. I, you know, studied hard and, and things like that during high school, but it didn't really kick up into gear until college because I realized, wow, like I want to show that I can belong and I, I want to make an impact here. And ultimately, I was able to do very well at Ohio State, which ultimately led the path uh, to Harvard Law. And really, what shaped me to go to a place like Harvard was, you know, I was a political science major, really getting interested in politics and. A lot of this, because of my own educational experience, I was really interested in education policy. I, I thought, look, education can open all sorts of doors of opportunity uh, for people and, the, and their futures. And so I wanted to be an advocate. And so I p- thought maybe I'd go into education law, some sort of policy, maybe one day do some work at the Department of Education, one of those types of things. Um, but ultimately, as I started to develop this analysis, I realized that it's much deeper than just an education. And you've got to have all these other social determinants figured out along the way. And that's where the connection to the law and just more broadly think about how the law and policies shape life outcomes. That's ultimately why I decided to go to law school. Would have never in my wildest dreams imagined uh, to go to a place like Harvard.
1: I read a book uh, called 1L about the first year at Harvard Law, which I know is well out of date and that it's been humanized a bit since that time what was the experience like for you?
0: Yeah. So I also read that book and I read that book uh, before I started uh, to just to get a sense. I read a bunch of those books. What is it like to go to a place like Harvard or or to law school generally? So I will say that uh, I think I had a better experience than the book laid out in terms of how ruthless and kind of cutthroat uh, it could be. When I went to law law school, the, the dean of The law school was Martha Minow, and prior to that, it was Dean Elena Kagan, you know, Supreme Court Justice. But one of the things that she did was really instituted a policy around kind of grading, so that it still is a very competitive process, of course, like with your grades. But the grading scale kind of shifted in a way where it wasn't just all about I need to be the top of my class, and this is the first thing that we need to do. And so I think that actually eased some of these tensions that some of these other law schools have because everyone's trying to get. To the top of the class, and so the justification ultimately was: it going to a place like Harvard. You know, you're going to be going up against a whole bunch of people, but you're still going to be up there when it comes to your ability uh, to be successful. And so for me, I actually enjoyed my experience because people were more down to earth than I than I thought. You know, I, I you know went to public school my entire life, and so to go to a place like Harvard, I thought it was going to be pretty elitist and it's a private institution. And so I wasn't sure whether or not this was going to be something that I could fit in at. And thankfully there are a lot of people uh, from a lot of different backgrounds who were pretty down to earth. Now, of course you have some folks uh, who are not so great and uh, are going to be world leaders and are diametrically opposed to everything that I I stand for. But for the most part, I, I really enjoy my experience there.
1: Was there a particular class or teacher or subject that caught your fancy?
0: A couple of them. So one was with my professor, Charles Ogletree, is a, is a very prominent professor there, um, a, a prominent uh, you know, mentored uh, President Barack Obama, uh, Michelle Obama, so many others, and was a prominent leader at the law school. And there was a couple of different classes that I took. One was on understanding Mandela. It was actually very, very interesting, uh, really thinking through the ways in which Mandela's politics through the lens of a global politics, but then also ways in which that operates within the framework in the United States about politics around race and politics about how we view society and where we are moving forward today. Um, That was a really interesting class, really interesting experience. And of course, then I took a couple other race in the law classes, wasn't quite critical race theory, but we talked about critical race theory and that those were all those concepts came together. Um, and so those teachers shaped my experiences. And then ultimately, Martha Mennow, the dean of the law school, who, who I did a lot of work with when I was involved in student government, and she was my constitutional law professor, um, really learned a lot from her as well. And so I, I had an incredible experience there, really enjoyed my interactions with those uh, professors.
1: Did I read that you ran for office there?
0: So, I was student body president at Harvard Law. And, um, and so, I, I served there the 2015, 2016 uh, school year there. Um, and then when I came back to Columbus is when I ran, ran for office as well.
1: Student body president there, what do you do in the law school? Of,
0: of course, right? So, uh, it varies, right? So a, a lot of it is is what you know. The, the goal there is to be representative of of the voice of the student body um, and law students, right? Law students are very busy, and so you know you ask like you know what does the student government look like for law school? A lot of it is like the various initiatives that we're trying to. Uh, move forward to make the the law school experience better, and so one was around DEI, and so thinking about not only how how do we diversify the faculty of the law school, so looking at actual initiatives of, of what it means more broadly, but then also how do we think through the types of initiatives that the law school puts forward to make it a more diverse, inclusive place in the first place. So a lot of the work is focused on broader initiatives to make the law school better? What does it look like, their financial uh, aid and support situation? What does it look like in terms of making sure students get the mental health and, and access to uh, healthcare resources that they need to have? So these were kind of policies that we would advocate for. And then you would also advocate for policies in classrooms. How are we making sure that the rating systems are set up in a way that is transparent so students know kind of what they're getting into when they go into to the classroom? Two, Things like you know hosting the Halloween party and the Thanksgiving party. Usually, it's pretty low key. You know, being in that experience in the student government for law school. However, the year that I was student body president was the same year in which uh, we had massive disruptions over uh, issues around race in the school. It came to light in 2014 and 2015 that. Harvard Law School's uh, shield that they had to represent the law school uh, was actually uh, based off of uh, a brutal uh, owner of enslaved people was Isaac Royal and his family. That was the family crest. And so when this came to light, uh, a lot of student activists said, we don't want this shield representing Harvard Law School and we don't want to be here for it. And then, of course, it sparked all sorts of debates because you had some students who say, oh, we want to preserve history you know, we should keep it here. And it's just a symbol. It doesn't mean anything. And other students say, no, this is not where I w- want to be. And so it actually sparked off all sorts of activism, probably the most active uh, protests that we saw in the law school's history since the, the early 90s uh, with Derek Bell and others who were pushing against um, the law school and its treatment of faculty and not having a diverse faculty. And so, There was all sorts of protests at the law school, and I had to navigate this space at a time in which I was working with the administration and also having to represent students at a time when not a whole lot of people wanted to work with the administration, understandably so, because they had to navigate an interesting line because they had donors, they had former alumni who were saying, keep the shield, you got to keep the shield. And they were having others who were uh, saying, Well, it's going to be a whole process that you got to navigate through, so you can't remove the shield. And then, meanwhile, the student activists, to their credit, they took over the student union. They, they occupied the student union for an entire semester and renamed it Belinda Hall, who's one of the formerly enslaved persons uh, who then became a, a free woman in Massachusetts. But these were the stories that they were trying to tell to talk about all the systemic issues at a place like Harvard that people wanted to pave over and it was a tough lesson in leadership about how to navigate these spaces because at the same time you had a bunch of conservative students who said you know our voices are being silent because you know we want to keep history and uh, we're we're not able to to freely speak our minds and so a lot of debates and discussions happened that we had to help facilitate as student government
1: now my my uh older daughter went to Woodrow Wilson High School in the District of Columbia, a diverse, interesting public high school, and they just renamed it this year. Is the first time uh, under a new name, and it was interesting to watch my younger daughter, who's in middle school, sort of naturally like, "Wait, I'm not going to go to the same name high school as as my older sister." The, you know, it, it it was a little hard for her to accept. And it's a complicated thing because like Woodrow Wilson was a very progressive president on many fronts, but a racist and a terrible president on that particular highly important issue. And these big symbolic things are woven into our society everywhere, right? The, you know the the legacy of our past is inescapable. You're in the middle of this. Tell me more about what you learned about leadership in that. I mean, I talked to Mitch Landrieu who navigated that with taking statues down in New Orleans. You need some deafness, I think, to not have things break down and to get results that make everybody as happy as possible and move society forward, right?
0: Exactly. And it was a time just of intense turmoil. And, and, and there's a couple of reasons why. So, so one was, you know, this came to light you know, i said about 2014, and it came to light, and more students started to talk about because there was a historian who who did a lot of work on it, and other students were really pushing and, and pressing around this. And at first, it was kind of a, a small group of organizers who were pushing against the, the the shield. I would say this is the beginning of 2015, uh, the school year. They were really kind of pushing against this shield and said. You know, we should remove it. And, you know, this is representative of all of, of the, this legacy of, of white supremacy and this legacy of slavery. This should not be representative of the law school. At first, you know, folks were kind of organizing there and in, in, in the corner and pushing, but there wasn't a lot of movement happening. But what happened though was those students, those activists were pushing and pushing and pushing, and others started to come along board because they realized how big of an issue this was and why this mattered while some people said yeah i don't like it but it is what it is this is the shield this is the symbol they're probably not going to change it anyway so just going to go on with it but it wasn't until there was an incident it was right actually right after thanksgiving where the or this this thanksgiving uh dinner that we put together um but there was an incident that occurred where uh somebody someone we don't know who uh put black tape over the portraits of just the black professors. So the student union has a wall of all the professors that have taught at at Harvard Law over the years. And somebody put black tapes over the mouths of the portraits of the black professors is really kind of a silencing method because what the student activists had been doing was they had been kind of covering the shield symbol and saying it represents racism And so as a response, as a counter-response backlash, somebody put the black tape there and said, basically, it was pretty clear of stop talking about these issues, right? And it was a direct affront uh, to the activism that was happening. And then really just an affront to anybody at that school where somebody would respond in that way um, to basically silence the voices of these professors, but the voices of students that were pushing for this. That backlash actually ensued more um, in uh, a resurgence of people and activism who said, this is enough. And we actually shouldn't have this shield representing us because this legacy is very much alive here in this school right now in this community. This is not just something that happens far, far away in the old times. This is happening right now. And the, what I had to do at the same time was know that the administration had to do something about it. And you couldn't just debate these issues as if these are both sides' issues. And so what happened was the administration put together a series of community conversations uh, that we helped work kind of with them to help kind of facilitate. but their initial community conversation was uh, disastrous, to say the least, because it it didn't necessarily um, grasp with the pain that so many students were feeling. Um, and as a result of that, Um, people pushed back and the administration didn't really know how to respond because this had always been their shield, or it hadn't always been the shield, but it had been the shield for the last 70, 80 years for the law school. And it was part of an endowment and part of a a campaign for the law school. And so we had to navigate what to do about uh, this shield. And ultimately, we put together a task force to study whether or not to remove the shield and all sorts of things like that. And so we had to take in a lot of different input from also, of course, conservative alumni and donors who were saying, keep the shield, keep that together. And we had to open the debate and the conversation in a way that understood and empathized with students who felt deep pain, and then also realized that it's a process. If this were ever to be removed, we've got to go through a process to make that possible.
1: Do you think that the end result worked? and what was it.
0: So the end result was ultimately the shield was removed. And now 5 or 6 years later, uh, Harvard actually finally unveiled what the replacement shield is. They have a new shield and entirely new, but for the last 5 6 years, Harvard Law, they didn't have a shield. It was just Harvard Law. And um but I actually think it worked and here's why. Because students were pushing for the removal of that shield. It needed to get approval from the board of trustees and all of that. And what happened then, though, was we had to make sure that there was a process in place so that it couldn't just be reversed overnight either. Even though I personally believe that I was like, I think we need to remove the shield. I think it should be removed. There's no reason uh, for us to have it, especially because it represents so much pain. And because the family in which uh, (laughs) you're representing is not something we want to be associated with or should be associated with. And then basically the the dean put together a task force. Students were selected by student government to be a part of that task force. And then we had to kind of offer a, a kind of a narrow line where I couldn't necessarily come out and say I'm against the shield, even though I was, because I wanted to make sure that folks knew that there was a legitimate process and I'm not weighing in one way or the other, or that the dean isn't weighing in one way or the other and that there was a a study to really culminate what to do about it. Now, the problem, though, is that that was just one of the many demands of activists. Uh, They were saying, remove the shield, but also uh, do more around critical race theory, do more around an orientation that is actually inclusive in making sure that people have a better experience at the law school, hire more diverse faculty, retain more diverse faculty, establish a separate office of diversity, and equity, and inclusion. There were a number of demands that students were making. And this idea that you're only going to just do the removing the shield and the symbol, that is not enough. People recognize too that task forces and all this stuff is often used as de- a delay tactic and nothing ever gets done. In this instant, they did it pretty fastly compared to how mu- most things move at the law school but they still didn't address a lot of the other issues that these student activists and organizers were pushing for. And so I understand the frustration. I'm sure some people are obviously excited that it's no longer part of the shield, but that was not the main fight. There was much deeper fights that um, I think we're seeing examples of today where people say, well, we'll remove a symbol here and we'll put out a, a word of solidarity or a statement of a solidarity, but we're not going to address the underlying issues uh, that have led to these problems in the first place.
1: It's always dangerous ground to tread, but like, did you think any of the demands didn't make sense from the activists?
0: For me, I never wanted to be in a position of, of placing whether or not something was deemed too radical or not possible, because honestly, I think the demands help push the administration to negotiate. I mean, I think a lot of it was a negotiating position. There were some demands that probably, and I knew, just were not going to happen, However, you know, they needed to be entered into the record that there were meetings and they had discussions about these demands. And because it actually connected to the timeline of activism at the law school. I mean, you think about some of these demands that uh, the students were making, especially around faculty and especially around um, the types of classes that we were, were teaching, especially 1Ls. And the demands were pretty reasonable, especially since some of these didn't get met 20 years ago. And I think what it did was it put people in a position to put uh, the administration on record to either make a commitment or not to some of these demands. Again, everybody has conversations about tactics and which tactics work or which tactics might not work. But even then, I think some of the activists, you know, that's not a monolith either because you have different groups that are asking for different things. What I did know was that some of the members in student government, you have the you know the executive team, the student body president, vice president, then you have uh, these representatives of, of each class year. And some of them were really pushing for you know trying to get as many radical demands as you could, and others said, maybe not. Meanwhile, I'm having to t- kind of back channel a lot of these behind the scenes with administration. And that was when I knew whether or not a certain thing was going to happen. And that was when I was, I got more of an insight on, okay, well, There's just no chance this is going to happen, but maybe we can try to push them on a couple of things. And so I think tactics, that's always a question. It's not my place to uh, question tactics. And I actually think, had you not had those organizers pushing, nothing would have happened. I think people would have just kept going on the status quo
1: that's what it works and what training as a politician you were getting in that role
0: oh yeah well one it, you can't make everybody happy i think is uh, is a is a big lesson in leadership and then also really just uh how important it is to listen literally listen to um what people are looking for and some sometimes people are not in a position to negotiate they don't want to negotiate they want to they want to talk about Uh, their experiences, uh, how they've been wronged, how they've been harmed. And I think there's sometimes uh, this idea that we can just jump quickly to a solution uh, to some of these problems. But the problem is when you do that without dealing with the underlying issues, the the root of of where these problems are lying, then you're still going to be dealing with those problems. uh, Even after you might have uh, theoretically solved one thing, uh, there's a much deeper problem that you have to deal with. And at the end of the day, you have to be clear in what you believe as a leader. And for me, it was, you know, while I personally believed, especially in this particular situation, that the law school had a lot of work to do in this space, I also understood that um, the ways in which you have to interact in these spaces, you need to have all the different players, the folks who are going to be operating on the inside, and then also folks who are pushing on the outside. And the constraints that's placed on you in a given position. But I also understand that you can come pretty complacent because sometimes people are so much more interested in being at the table than they are about kind of upsetting the status quo when they're at that table because you're not going to get invited back if you keep upsetting the status quo like that. But I think if you're clear about where uh, certain things are coming from, you have to build trust. You have to build trust. That was one of the issues here was that some of the trust wasn't even built. Some of these relationships weren't even built. And so when a big problem happens without that trust happening in the first place, then you're going to run into all sorts of issues. And so you've got to build relationships long before something becomes a crisis. And if you don't do that, you go with the courage of your convictions, and but listen to people. Um, and you're not going to, to make everybody happy. I mean, you got to throw that out of the window pretty quickly. Uh, that's just not going to happen.
1: So a lot of people think about Law school followed by a very lucrative position in corporate law, starting in the multiple hundreds of thousands. What did you do post Harvard Law? You know,
0: my, my student loans remind me uh, that I did not do that. Um, <laughs> so I, so actually, for me, you know, even when I was going into law school, you know, as I mentioned before, I was thinking maybe education policy, some, some other ways to be an advocate of using the law. I never was interested in going to a corporate law firm, just never was interested in practicing law in a traditional sense. And actually during my interview for law school with with Harvard, I had mentioned that I said, look, like I don't think I'm going to be going to the private law firm route. Like I just don't think that's going to be the case. And they said, that's great. That's fine. We've got plenty of lawyers who are going that route. Like we wanted others who are looking to make an impact in other ways. And so for me um, it was primarily focused on the public interest and my first step out of law school was to to come back to Columbus and ultimately was at the Kerwin Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity. And I got connected to this work because after my first year of law school, during my summer, I decided to come back to Columbus. There's a lot of different opportunities that first summer of of your first year of law school, you get to decide where you want to go and what that looks like for you. Some opportunities in DC, California, New York, but ultimately I wanted to come back uh, to Ohio because at the time, I had the opportunity to work at the state house and work with the legal counsel at the state house with the minority caucus, which was uh, the Democratic caucus at the time. And I made a lot of connections in the Columbus region and Columbus area. And that's where I got connected with the work that was happening at the Kirwan Institute, which were talking about all these issues around race and about structural racism, systemic racism at a time when not a whole lot of people were talking about that in 2014. And Then this was all culminating around the same time around Black Lives Matter movement, where more people were having these conversations. And ultimately, I knew that I wanted to do something with race and politics, and and I was still thinking education, but especially about race. And it shaped so many different dynamics. And ultimately, after law school, I decided that I wanted to come back to Ohio State and to work at the Kerwin Institute for the Study of Race and Ethnicity, where I could do legal policy, but I could also look at implicit bias. I could look at structural racism and how racism is embedded in the law and how that perpetuates disparities over time. Um, and so I love that opportunity. And so it was to go in the public interest, but I knew that, uh, be a lot of student loans and wasn't going to be the traditional path of private law firm life.
1: Did you suggest earlier when I asked about running for office that you, that you had also run for office in Ohio?
0: So in Ohio, in in 2017, uh, you know, after, uh, President Trump was, was uh, elected, and uh, when the landscape in Ohio and beyond uh, was not looking great for people who had a progressive vision for uh, this country, there was an open state Senate seat uh, for the, the 2018 election. And this was an opportunity where I had conversations with, with several folks about really being able to make the translation of the policy that we're talking about and actually make it real and into law. And so there was an opportunity to run for the state Senate in 2018. And that was something that I decided to pursue and briefly put together a campaign uh, to do that, got a lot of support coming together. But that was also a foray into local party politics. And so when a a sitting state representative decided that he wanted to go for that state Senate seat, um, I had to face a choice of whether or not I wanted to to primary uh, him and that state senator uh, to open my political career. And I said, not worth it. Like I don't need to be in this position and ultimately decided to back out and not run for the state Senate seat at that time. And looking back on it, this state house is pretty much a mess here. You have a a super majority in the state house. Now we'll see what happens with these new maps, hopefully. Um, But uh, there wasn't a whole lot of folks can get done uh, if you have views that I have. But Ultimately, briefly uh, was going to do that, but decided ultimately not to do it.
1: It's a big investment, and it's hard to take on someone who is already established and has a base. Do you harbor a long-term interest in elected office, perhaps?
0: I think I've become more jaded over the last four, <laughs> four years. So, so it's a mix of jaded and hopeful. I mean, I, I think for me, I've always tried to understand, especially going in, in, you know, after law school, trying to figure out where's the way I can make the most impact. I've enjoyed uh, for a while doing that through the, the work at the Kerwin Institute in a policy role. And then now with the Roosevelt Institute as, as, as this policy think tank type of role, really thinking about ideas, but then how do you translate those ideas into action? And now, you know, I'm at the point where I think politics one day would be something I'm interested in doing, but I also recognize the limitations of politics and of elected officials and the roles in which you have to play. And so for me, there's there's a lot of it that I, I find enjoyable in terms of being able to directly have a platform to be able to make an impact. But then there's a lot of it, too, that I think uh, is part of the political game. And it's, it's, a, it's a game to a lot of people. And to me, um, you know, these issues are too serious for that. But I think the more that I see some of these politicians, I'm thinking, wow, the, some of these guys should not be in office. And so you got to have more and better elected leaders. So maybe one day, but we'll see.
1: Why did you jump from Kirwan to Roosevelt?
0: So it was an incredible opportunity how, how this happened. So when I was at the Kerwin Institute um, uh, in in early 2019, Derek Hamilton came on board. Dr. Derek Hamilton came on board at the Kerwin Institute. Um, and I got to work very closely with him and his, fo- his focus as an economist uh, was very much on... Uh, stratification economics and looking at the ways in which um, our society is stratified around these different um, lines when it comes to race and gender and different identity uh, impacts and seeing how uh, racism and the law and political economy shapes our policy and policymaking. I love this work that I was able to do with, with Derek and he was connected uh, to the work at the Roosevelt Institute and with Uh, my present boss, Felicia Wong, and he was working on issues around post-neoliberalism. How do we move beyond this kind of framework, this market as the solution to all of our problems framework in which we've had over the last 50 years and do something more deeper? And that's when I got connected to work that was happening at the Roosevelt Institute. And I started talking with Felicia and she was talking about how they wanted to do a project around merging race and the economy and our democracy Uh, And ultimately, this is something that I wanted to help on and support on. And uh, when Derek left, he went back to the new school. um, It opened up a door, an opportunity for me to do the work at Roosevelt. And and, and I've loved it uh, ever since.
1: So you've been there a little over a year. Yep. Yep. A
0: little over a year. Yep.
1: Tell me about what you've been up to.
0: So the biggest thing uh, that I've been doing at uh, the Roosevelt Institute has been this project on we call it the Racial Justice Landscape Project, which looks at the the politics of of race in America over the last mostly focused on the last 50 60 years post kind of civil rights era and looking at the ways in which this focus on neoliberalism has shaped so many of the power dynamics in our society you know you look at the civil rights movement you look at the black power movements and the other associated movements for justice and you also see how there is this constant period of Progress and backlash. And some others, like, you know, I know the columnist uh, Perry Bagan has talked about this and others about counter movements, right? These reactionary forces and, and re- really the topics we talk about on this podcast, which is thinking through the ways in which you make this tremendous progress on racial justice that opens doors and advances that we hadn't seen since the Reconstruction era. But then you have this new consensus that came together fueled by neoliberalism, which pushed back against progress against civil rights. And so what we wanted to do was look at this current moment we're in with the Black Lives Matter movement, with all the different movements for justice in today's era, and see, do we see a shift here? We've already have made the argument that we see that neoliberalism has failed. It has not resulted in the, the, the success that its adherents said it would, and we knew that wasn't going to happen, but that alone has failed. But also, our politics on race that have been upheld by Democrats and Republicans has also failed. And so how do we understand the moment we're in? And so what we did was we actually did a canvas, a a landscape. We had a full team together to actually do a review on the latest uh, research and policy on politics, movement building, and what people view their theories of change are on racial justice, and we looked at scholars and organizers, movement actors to think through, what are we thinking about this moment in time and what are their views on inequality? What are their views on race and democracy? What are their views on race and the law and how it has it shaped where we move forward today? And what we found uh, consistently was that there's actually a coalescing, a new kind of emergent coalition, multiracial coalition that is organizing around these themes, these values of freedom and liberation, which has been connected to these social movements from the very beginning, from systems of oppression, but also freedom and liberation to be able to have the ability to determine the shape and structure of your life outcomes. And so, a lot of this work was to do this review of where we are in today's landscape and where we can go moving forward. And that was the culmination of. The latest report that we completed in November, which is this beyond racial liberalism, beyond neoliberalism and finding a new paradigm for justice and democracy. And so we're really excited about what this means because we are in a moment of tremendous promise, but also a tremendous reaction on the right and the far right with white supremacy and rising authoritarianism and those who want permanent minority rule, which is directly counter uh, to this idea of a multiracial democracy.
1: It does feel like we are deeply embattled on this particular front right now. The consensus on the left about moving away from colorblind ideas to recognizing systemic problems and trying to attack them or be aware of them in policy and the backlash on the other side or the attention to some aspects of that and the political fuel that has been giving them and success that they've found in harnessing people's uh, fear and skepticism about those kind of results. And some of the things that are said on the right can feel persuasive, I think, around, I don't want my six-year-old to feel like they are being taught that they're the oppressor or the oppressed, right? I I think that almost anyone can see that and say, that's not what anyone's aiming at, right? You're right. I think this is a moment. How do we navigate this without without allowing the right to tear us apart on this line of cleavage that's just such a sore spot in our nation's history?
0: You have to do it on on all fronts and and consistently. And I think, uh, unfortunately, uh, on the left and and as progressive, then, of course, our mainstream politics has ignored this for a long time. We know this fault line on race in which we have kind of, in the post-civil rights era, have kind of avoided really leaning in uh, at the mainstream level, talking about race and talking about inequality in ways that um, have allowed these powerful narratives to continue. And that's why know, we talk about why neoliberalism was such an impact on this political project, this idea that if you leave everything to the market and individual actors, um, then you can really have this idea of the American dream, this concept that you're on your own, but if you work hard, uh, you're responsible, you play by the rules, then you can make it. And that's a powerful narrative. People think, well, as an individual, if I want to work hard, if I want to be successful, why should I be blamed if somebody else isn't successful? And the reason that's powerful is because it ignores the role of systems. And this is something that both political parties, many ideologies that were in the mainstream, it continued to ignore the role of systems, and especially when it comes to the issue of race and and racism. People see racism as an individual thing, an individual phenomenon. They think somebody who's being overtly racist or bigoted or or, or discriminatory, that's something where people can see, oh, well, they use the racial slur that's racist, right? And they see it about something about somebody's hearts and minds. And so we want to think about people being good people. and if that's not their intention, then they can't be racist. The only racists are those who are, you know wearing KKK hoods, right? Like those are the, the ways in which we've seen our politics, but that's been so simplified when we don't realize that the reason why we have inequality, the reason we have these systems of exclusion, has been through intentional policy choices and a part of our politics. And I think we haven't been able to combat that narrative because it's a powerful narrative. It's something that um, a lot of people across the political spectrum believe in. This idea that um, the inequality that we see today, a lot of it might have to do with a fault of your own or something else, but if you work hard, you can make it. And especially when it comes to these issues around systemic racism, structural racism, people have a hard time grasping the connections between why does something that happens 400 years ago or even 100 years ago have an impact on where we are today and it's why it's so important for us to talk about how these systems have evolved over time i think brian stevenson puts it so well when he talks about how it related to the civil war the north won won the battle but uh, the south won the narrative war because they're still telling this narrative this ideology of grievance. It's ultimately a grievance. It's so-and-so has been given things that they don't deserve and the inequality that you're experiencing, you shouldn't deserve that. But that is happening because those people over there, that nativist, that racist, those strands have been central uh, to American politics from the very beginning. And they continue today and they draw a lot of fear and emotion and it's powerful. And so that's why it's persuasive. And the way we push it back is is on all sorts of fronts. You've got to do it when we talk about teaching about our history, learning about why we are where we are today. A lot of folks don't know that history we're coming to find. They don't know that history. And then we also have to be honest about how we're talking about these issues in the media and how we're talking about these issues among our political players, where people who are literally exploiting people for their own gains, that's something that they're doing not in good faith, and we have to do a better job reaching across the divide to reach people on these issues.
1: People running for office have been playing that race card in a nefarious way for a long time, long time before Trump. I mean, obviously, even in the post-civil rights era, the Willie Horton campaigns, things like that, where Reagan chose to launch his campaign. There are so many examples of that. But what Trump did was less coded and more on the surface and I wonder how you feel that played out like in certain ways I've heard people say it uncovered something that we knew already and maybe that was helpful my own view is it's it can't really be generally helpful to to run on on a racist platform but like how do you see how this this era is shaped by Mr. Trump among others who are play in this in a dastardly way.
0: Yeah. So you're exactly right about how, you know, prior to Trump, uh, you you had people who incited these strands um, and kind of this dog whistle uh, racism in which they would navigate around where they were less overt about it, but very clearly undertones when you talk about Reagan and talking about welfare queens, when we talk about all these things in which he would get at people's grievances and playing on stereotypes about why things are the way they are. Black without,
1: hands in a Jesse Helms commercial. Yes, or, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. Exactly.
0: And so being very much uh, playing on, on these stereotypes and these racist tropes, but never crossing the line in the same way, even though other times would, but people would give others the benefit of the doubt, at least the, the large mainstream. And then Trump comes along and he realizes that, you know, he's going to tap into these issues and go all the way up to the line and many times cross the line and incite these strands. But it's the uh, the shock value in which he brought to the foray. And then you had a political party and the Republican Party, they were not prepared in their establishment ranks to deal with it. And then you also had a media infrastructure and a media environment that also didn't realize how to deal with it. You know, me, Think about how many times someone says something that is blatantly racist and the media might report it as, you know, racially tinged or seen as uh, racially insensitive. There's this inability for them to say something is racist because they don't want to, you know, how are we to be able to say what's in somebody's mind, right? There's this belief there and all these things are happening over time.
1: He'll say something and then he'll say, but some of them are I guess, good people. If you talk to people who are close to him, I talked to his one of his vice presidents uh, of his construction company. He says racist stuff behind the scenes. He's not just playing this card for political gain. It's actually who he is, right? But he's a little clever about how he plays it so that it makes it just a touch hard for the media
0: it's it's all about denial i mean it's you say one thing and then you say oh but actually i didn't mean x y or z here
1: go down to go down and be tough at the u.s capitol but be peaceful
0: exactly exactly and so it you know we're and and so we're not going to get played for fools right but we know though at the same time on the left and, and especially the mainstream democratic party also was not prepared to talk about these issues There is a consensus. I mean, think about when Barack Obama was elected president of the United States in 2008, many people thought somehow this is a a post-racial era. Uh, Of course, uh, a lot of folks knew that this was not going to be this post-racial era. The the president himself knew that was not going to be post-racial era. But what we saw then was this vitriol and backlash with the Tea Party movement and so much to the election of the first black president. But it's not like anybody could come out and say, well, this backlash is racist. Because what we even see today is people get more upset about being called racist than they are about the racist action itself. And so you are- And also it's
1: not only racist. It's many things. Yes. Which racism is one of those- one of those strands. It's also sexist. Yes. It's also based on economic policy. It's also tons of things, right? Exa- it's,
0: exactly. It's all yeah. these things coming together. It's this, it's this idea around grievance about the other. And as a result, that is the justification for why people can act like X, Y, or Z. And this is where I think we're running into a problem because we view these through, these issues through a zero-sum lens. That's why I actually think uh, Heather McGee in her, in her latest book, The Sum of Us, is an incredible. Uh, book because it talks about how this game around racism is seen as zero sum and that others are taking from you. And as a result, that's where the folks should be on. The view for her around the sum of us is about how we can do this together and bring people along that isn't about a zero sum game. And I think that's important for all of us.
1: The last, I I guess, a year plus has been dominated by Biden trying to get through a giant reconciliation bill, and despite forty-eight senators willing to vote his way, maybe fifty on that bill, but not willing to quote change the rules on filibuster, uh, we can't get to that to that vote. Do you want to talk about like the connection between the filibuster rule itself and race? Because I know that they are intertwined along the way.
0: Yeah, so the filibuster is deeply rooted in a legacy of white supremacy. It has been used, at least the, the modern version of the filibuster, you know, since 1917, has been used as a tool against civil rights bills. The majority of of the times it was used from, you know, 1917 to the early 90s was against civil rights legislation, whether it's anti-lynching bills or bills to eliminate the the poll tax. These were continually uh, used to block civil rights legislation, and that's why so many have pointed out it's racist history. You know, Mitch McConnell will speak the other day about how, you know, it's not racist, it didn't start part of a racist history, but if you look at the modern version of where we see the filibuster used today, it has been to block civil rights legislation. And so some people try to point out well, you know, it's also used to block other things and to, to ignore the ways in which it has this history associated with. But this helped preserve the era of Jim Crow. It's why we didn't see anti lynching bills passed in the early 20s and 30s. It's why we saw so much fighting over the Civil Rights Act. It's why we didn't have the types of robust legislation in the Civil Rights Act, for example, of 1957. That was weakened because the use of the filibuster ultimately weakened and compromised it. And so it has a deeply racist history. But again, people see things that happened in the past and they see where we are today and say, well, it's just a, a tool. And so it can't be racist. But we know, as it just did, it can block things like uh, voting rights, which is critical and important.
1: It generally impedes change, which, which is uh, bad for the progressives, right? And it also blocks majority rule, which doesn't seem really great in a democracy, but it does also look like it's kind of dead for now as something that we might reform, doesn't it?
0: I think the filibuster, um, it, it, it's, it's on its last legs here. Um, the question now is whether or not Democrats are going to be in power and eliminate the filibuster, or Republicans are going to be in power to eliminate the filibuster. Because despite all the speeches that we heard from Republicans about preserving the filibuster, we know the second that if they ever get into power, they will remove the filibuster. It's going to be a shock to Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin when they see that happening. But it will happen because it impedes progress on so many sorts of fronts. And it is something where you have 48 Democratic senators who voted uh, to at least eliminate or reform the filibuster in this particular situation. Uh, so I do think it's on its last legs. Now, the question is, does it happen before you know, 2022? I don't know. And it, it seems like the reform um, chances are much lower because you have two senators who literally continue to impede progress and undermine uh, the president's agenda, but undermine the majority will. Their history and understanding of the filibuster is just wrong. They're not talking about these issues in good faith. It is disingenuous. And the facts make that very clear. And so I think we're running into a situation where um, it's just going to be a question of who's going to be in power when the filibuster gets removed.
1: I sure hope it's not them and they pass a whole bunch of voting restrictions through like they've been doing in states nationally. That could be pretty catastrophic.
0: Exactly. and And they're perfectly fine with sitting around and, and obstruction happening over the next few years with with uh, President Biden. And while these state legislatures continue to pass restrictive voting laws on simple majorities, the notion that you need a supermajority is is astonishing and, and really unbelievable in today's age. And yet this idea around minority rights, when you're talking about Republican senators, Should not mean minority rule, but it now is set up in a mechanism that is helping facilitate minority rule over the will of the majority. And that is a disaster for our democracy, especially a multiracial democracy.
1: What's it like to work at the Roosevelt Institute?
0: I love it. I have colleagues that have so many different perspectives and experiences, and especially a lot of the focus is on uh, the economy and ways in which the the economic rules are shaped uh, for a wealthy few and a minority few to hoard onto power and wealth, and knowing that until the economy works for everybody else, it's not working, right? And it's also part of the legacy of FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt you know the Roosevelt Institute is a nonprofit you know think tank partner to uh, the FDR Presidential Library and Museum and it's part of this legacy that is focused on basically a new deal for the 21st century right one in which is race conscious is gender conscious doesn't focus on the exclusion of certain groups but actually the inclusion of everybody in knowing at the foundation if you want to have freedom if you want to have liberty and, and the ability to uh, determine the shape and structure of your lives, you've got to have economic security. And so um, a lot of my colleagues do a variety of things. So from you know putting out actual reports and doing this research to actually um, testifying at congressional hearings to talk about these issues, to talk about why some of these inflation concerns can be overblown when we need to be focused on investing in workers, investing in the economy and shifting the powers of our, of our uh, economic system And so I I really enjoyed it. And now we're really thinking through ways in which we can tie in race and our democracy and how these issues are connected with the economy.
1: There's a lot of fear in the Democratic campaign consulting and big media analyst world about some of the issues that get raised in racial politics right now backfiring against Democrats. There seems to be some evidence of that in election campaigns of late, how would you advise Democrats to deal with issues of communicating around race, around system, systemic inequalities, and and long time injustices like this? How how should how should we be talking about it?
0: Well, you need to talk about it for one, uh, and and take the issue head on um, because the default in a lot of these situations has been to not talk about race, and so. You know this idea around don't take the bait, don't talk about race because people are uncomfortable around it and it can be unpopular around it. But what happens when you decide to ignore race? When maybe you're only talking about quote unquote the kitchen table issues? You always hear this. You know, talk about the economy, talk about these quote unquote kitchen table issues. What happens then, though, is you leave a vacuum in which your opponent can use these dog whistles, can use these things that uh, get at people's fears of and their resentment and utilize that in ways that are a wedge against whatever policy you're talking about. And so it's not enough to just talk about the kitchen table issues. You've got to talk about whose side you're on and what this is all about and how your opponent or others are trying to divide you on lines of race, on lines of gender, and how your politics and your vision represents and understands and sees that and knows that we can do this work together while they're trying to divide us. But I think you have to talk about the race. Now, you don't want to talk about it all the time, especially if you are not uh, very well versed on the topic. And if you're not authentic about it, you shouldn't do that. But you can speak to your own identity experiences and the identity experiences of others that race is one aspect of that, but that is not apart from everything else. And people, when they talk about racial justice, sometimes they think about only criminal justice issues or they think about only voting rights. They don't make the connections between the economy, between other aspects about why this matters. And so you have to talk about it and lean into it and make very clear that many of these opponents are not doing this in good faith. They're they are playing off people's fears, and they are, in many cases, lying. And you, don't, you can't let them get away with lying, especially around this debate around critical race theory about what's being taught in schools and all this. You've got to be able to take that head on. And then you've got to be able to pivot to what you are going to do and why they should elect you that goes beyond a very narrow view around racial politics in this country. But you can't ignore it, which is what too often happens. And, and, and then people blame it on activists rather than on you know, the fact that you haven't delivered when you're in office.
1: Who do you think is doing a good job in communicating in that fashion?
0: Sometimes it depends on what uh, you know, who you represent. One of the people who does a very good job of it, actually... Is the senator right here in Ohio? Senator Sherrod Brown, who's able to talk about, uh, does a lot about talking about economic populism, but then also talks about race. You know, he doesn't lean with it all the time, but he can talk about how the ways in which people have been divided and excluded and left behind. But he has an angle where he talks about how important it is about workers and about how you know even when he talks about the ballot box, about how workers can hold. The politicians and the wealthy accountable at the ballot box who want to hoard just wealth and power—that's an opportunity for workers to hold people accountable and 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 basically denounces the type of racism and the nativism that we're seeing that's used to divide. And I think he does an excellent job, and it shows. You know, to be an elected in a place like Ohio, um, that's pretty red, as a very progressive uh, United States senator is pretty impressive. He does it very well. I, I think. I also think AOC, you know, and she's got a more uh, progressive area. She does it well in terms of connecting with her constituents because at the end of the day, you can tell when people are authentic about these issues and when they're just trying to avoid it altogether. And she can authentically engage on these issues. And so I think we're we're seeing more people do it um, and talk about these issues. But you're you're really going to see it happen at at the federal level a lot of times. And of course, you know, I think about prior in prior eras, you had obviously President Barack Obama, who did an incredible job of talking about these issues and, and, and navigating these issues of race. And of course, with his own identity background, it was especially complicated. I know progressives wish he would have done more on some of these things, but uh, he did get elected twice. And so I, I think he did a pretty good job on race as well.
1: Yeah, I think so too. Um, is there a question I haven't asked you that you'd like to be asked?
0: No, I I think the biggest question here, and I think especially we have to think about the electoral politics, and we have to think about our long-term politics and policymaking. And I think one aspect of this is, look, we understand if you are in a district or an area where talking about these issues makes a whole lot of people uncomfortable, and it's hard to talk about issues of race, still to challenge yourself to be able to at least counter some of these racist, nativist messages that are happening and being able to tie it together into how people are trying to exclude and divide and about how you offer a positive vision moving forward. But we also know, though, that electoral politics is one thing. When you're in office, you have to deliver and people have to know you are fighting for them. And so obstruction and what we're seeing right now is not going to cut it. And so that's why I think it's so important that The media and others who are not politicians who can continue to push on these issues to talk about these issues and about how they impact other people. And that's something we need to have a long-term view on. We can't solely view things through the guise of electoral politics or public opinion. If we did that, we wouldn't have the Voting Rights Act that we had. If we did that, we wouldn't have where we are today on issues of racial justice because movements and others help push us and move us there. But we can't just think only in short-term political gain. And we have to think about the long-term. And the way to do that is by actually delivering when you are in office.
1: I mean, it's. I think it's a tricky point because you can only deliver if you have the votes to deliver. And you can only give the votes to deliver if you got the right people elected to deliver. And people are impatient and they don't understand the system uh as well as they should. They aren't taught as well as they should across the board, across this country. And so that connection between my vote in one election and what happens in the world is not straight. It's not tight. And so to be a good citizen, you have to sort of understand the complexity of that and be back over and over to, to keep fighting and voting for what makes sense.
0: Yeah, and you've got to and you got to make clear, you know, as elected leaders and others, uh, whose side you're on and who you're fighting for and and who the opposition is. And I think right now, especially with the media, infrastructure, and environment, with all the disinformation that's happening, all sorts of things, people see what goes on in Washington and they blame everybody. You know, they blame Democrats and Republicans. But right now, you have an entire political party uh, that has become radicalized, and especially around Donald Trump and people who are not paying attention to the day-to-day politics, they don't see all of that. And so unless you make that clear and continuously make that clear about who's standing in the way and who you are fighting for, people are not gonna see it. And I think the media also has to, has to do a better job of not both sides everything, and especially when it comes to our democracy. We are seeing attacks on democratic values and democratic institutions all across this country in many ways, by Republican-led state legislatures and a Republican party that is focused on that and a conservative ideology that is focused on that. We have to be honest about it. Otherwise, people are not going to know why certain things are happening and and why it is that your democratic values and democracy is important. That's the other thing. We've got to be able to tie in why someone should care about why you need to have a democracy, not just in the abstract, about what it means in your lives every day. So connecting that abstract into the reality is important.
1: Yeah, people aren't even saying they want a democracy and and shocking numbers in polling. It's scary. It it is very scary. Well, it's been great to talk to you. Really enjoyed getting to know you a little bit. Um, I wish you a lot of luck with what you're working on and hope you have a lot of impact. Uh, Is there anything else you want to say? No,
0: I just want to thank you so much for for the opportunity and really appreciate the work you're doing and and hope that I know sometimes uh, these issues can make people disillusioned and, and lose hope. Um, but you know, we're going to keep fighting. It, it is, it's the work that we do. It, it's disappointing. And, uh, but we got to keep fighting because the other side, um, is really pushing to have some sort of view on this that is not okay. So really appreciate the time. Let's keep fighting.
1: That was Kyle Strickland. Kyle is at rooseveltinstitute.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.